Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. This week, the first of a multi-part series, we begin exploring stories of clandestine activities that occurred in the context of the Contra-Sandinista conflict. But first, a look at headlines across the world. Canada has witnessed a complete shutdown of its railway network. This is like where I, I sound like a real fucking conspiracy theorist, but you can look all, all the stuff up that actually happened. Uh, so, post-World War II, uh, FDR had this realization towards the end of World War II that we, and he admitted this, he spoke to um, Churchill. He said to Churchill, we fought the wrong enemy in regards to the Nazis, right? He said, we should have been fighting the Soviets. Those were the ones. We should not have aided them. We should have been fighting them. And for the most part, Winston Churchill agreed. So Winston Churchill decided to send uh, a, uh, to kind of fund a little bit of the beginning stages of the OSS, which eventually turned into the CIA. But he funded some of that. He said he gave a little bit of money to it. And the OSS went to uh, two other operators, independent operators in Italy, because at the partisans who were essentially communists wanted more than anything. They were they were popular. They would have became a communist stronghold post World War II because they were responsible specifically for the assassination of um, uh, of Mussolini. They were the guys that hung him up. Right? They were the fucking cool kids in town. They were the guys that were fucking making moves. Because of that, uh, they were geared to, they were set to fucking actually take over, you know, the government. Um, there are two independent operators in Italy that did not want that to happen. And the first was the Vatican. Because the Vatican didn't want to be surrounded by communists. Because the Vatican feared that they would actually reappropriate the Vatican from the Vatican. They would take all of that wealth and redistribute it. They didn't want that. They said, fuck all that noise, right? The second operators were the Italian mafia, the actual real mafia. They did not want to deal with that because their import-export business would now be fucking completely decimated and taken over by communists, by Italian communists. They did not want that. So the OSS went and reached out to the Vatican and said, hey, we have all of this, we need to hide all of this money, or well, we need money so we can like buy arms and create uh, small groups, uh, stay behind operations. So like people who can, uh, at Gladio, yeah, uh, create some kind of like, prop, uh, pro, essentially kind of thing, which is like a propaganda unit and like, I don't know, I don't doing any actual real like arming shit, but that's what they were doing. They were arming people and creating militias and, and how that gets, how it gets like so the, the Vatican and the fucking uh, the mafia get involved, but it gets how that translates into southern uh, South America is that the OSS, which is now like I think in post I think 70s or post 60s, it's now like the CIA. Um, they need money. They're out. They ran out of money. They're, they're completely running out of money. So they need a, an operation to make money. Well, uh, a CIA agent who was originally, or I think it was either an agent or an asset, but he was originally a British uh, asset for whatever the British intelligence service was, and he was actually uh, f helping um, bring opium 
into China to fund uh, sabotage raids against the Soviets in the, on the Eastern Front. So he was like working with the Nazis, but like in a really weird fucking. Uh, anyways, he knew the opium routes. He knew how to get opium in and out of China, and he decided uh, if the CIA needs money, there's always money in opium. And the CIA said, "Yeah, that works." But here's the thing: uh, where do we sell it? Because we can't, like, because uh, the Vatican doesn't want it in Italy, and uh, our allies are most of Europe, with the exception, and, like, you know, it's not going to get up into Russia. They're not taking it, so what do we do with it? And so uh, he had the, the idea of, why don't we sell it in America? And at first, they were like, absolutely not. And he said, okay, but what if we sold it to the black communities in America, to the inner cities in America, right? And they did, and they were very fucking good at it. And if you look at all of the, the like, uh, in, I think, like, the 30s and the 40s, or not the 40s, like, 40s and the 50s, you look at, like, uh, Penny Holiday, you look at all of these fucking, like, great jazz musicians, they're completely hooked on fucking heroin, right? In fact, it was like a decimation of the black community through heroin, and it started, and in, in it, it was literally all of the money that they were paying those guys was going to the mafia who was smuggling all of that in. The Italian mafia was leveraging their connections with the American mafia, like Lucky Luciano, he was uh, a big trafficker of, of heroin and all that stuff. He was bringing them on board and, and trafficking into the inner cities, and he was making them incredibly rich, and they were all of that money that they were taking, they were sending it back to Italy, and they were arming these uh, these fronts. Well, the Italian mafia and the communists do not get along at all, which is really confusing when you start getting into like labor movements in America, right? <laughs> because labor movements were essentially socialist, but they were not communist. And so, like, you have like Jimmy Hoffa, who was a fucking hey, I'm a socialist, and then people's like, oh, you're a fucking communist, and he was like, no, fuck you, I work with the mafia. <laughs> essentially, what ends up happening is in uh, America runs into the same problem again, which is we need to fight the communists in Pakistan, in Iran, in uh, fucking Afghanistan. We need to fight the Soviets moving into there and arming these small, arming and, and collectivizing. What they were doing is they were collectivizing against Saudi oil, Saudi, uh, Saudi oil expansion, which was created by the British Empire. The British Empire gave the Saudis the ability to actually you know, consolidate their oil fields and become and start expanding. And if uh, if Russia had not interfered, like Saudi Arabia or like like Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, that would all just be Saudi. Those would just be Saudi oil fields. It would just be that would just be a gigantic republic like of, the, of Saudi Arabia, right? Russia interfering with that and getting tribesmen together to fucking band against you know like the rapid expansion of Saudi oil and Saudi and like. And what is it called? Uh, not frontierism, but it's when you in enclosure, when you just build a fence, and then that's yours, right? Which goes back to like feudalism uh, in the British Empire. And what I'm getting at is that America ran into the same problem. They needed more money, so they decided that their operation, in Operation Gladio, which was to sell heroin, uh, was a great fucking way to make money. But at the time, the heroin, uh, heroin was out of fashion. Heroin was something that not many people were fucking doing anymore. It was not interesting. This is like the 80s, right? This is the late 70s, early 80s. Um, they realized that there was an incredible product from south of the border uh, found in Bolivia, uh, Colombia, um, I think in parts of Argentina, and uh, Nicaragua, right? And so they took... Uh, the CIA went down and took these local squabbling uh, kingpins, nautical uh, kingpins, cartels that were fighting with each other. They took those guys and decided, hey, 
why don't we help you guys work together and we'll all get rich together? And they were just kind of like, well, what the fuck do the Americans do? Well, the Americans want it. And if the Americans want it, they'll buy it. And if they buy it, then they pay us. And if they pay us, we'll pay you. And don't worry about what we're doing with the rest of our money. Because America always needs money. And that's literally how they got all those guys on board. So the CIA decided that what was happening was the opsec of these cartels and these and these like warlords and these and these drug these like drug production markets, these nautical production markets, the opsec of them was not good enough for the for the CIA, right? It was not it was uh, there was like really high shrinkage, people were getting high on the job, they were stealing shit. You know, they're fucking a bunch of uh, like local farmers and stuff. They're not they none of them were trained in any kind of like security. So uh, the Americans decided, hey, we'll train you guys in OPSEC. We'll train you guys on how to fucking tighten security around here. And so what they did was they took these guys and they showed them not only how to like smuggle guns in and out of countries, how to finance this shit, how to use, uh, how to hide your your bank your money in the Bahamas, which became so. What happened was the Vatican was the main source of, of a way to hide your money, and the Bahamas became the second. And in fact, um, the mafia was deeply connected to like pre sixties before the rise of Castro. Um, the mafia was moving into Havana, Cuba, to turn it into a Las Vegas part two, like an island Las Vegas, and that was actually purely to launder money the, the whole concept of it was to launder heroin money and they were eventually planning on doing cocaine money as well but they you know uh, Castro threw all that fucked all that up so the rest of the Bahamas actually became how they started fucking uh, in Panama became how they started hiding their money um, but to the, Ameri- uh, the American society starts something called the School of Americas. And the School of Americas was the CIA teaching people not only how to torture and how to get information out of your torture victims, but also how to resist getting tortured, right? If you were to get captured by mm-hmm. Sandinistas or anything else. And a lot of how they convinced these, these men to uh, get tortured willingly was the idea that if they're tortured willingly or if they, if they give these men are not allowed to have wives these men are not allowed to have children these men are not allowed to have lives they live their lives for their country because they love their country right and they love their country more than they love themselves and that's how they trick like not trick them but that's how they program these guys they build these guys to be like these these machines where you can peel their fingernails off you can shock their genitals you can violate them sexually you can do whatever you want to these guys and they'll never break because at the end of the day they love their country more than they love anything else now they flipped sometimes uh every now and then what would happen in some of these school of america guys would actually be for the sandinistas and that's how especially in Nicaragua how it got so bloody right and there are accounts of like these things that, and this is what's fucking crazy to me all these guys that have, that did all this stuff in the 80s are still in today to this day they're still in the American government and I had a list somewhere I'll have to actually send it to you like because I don't I don't feel like googling it and like like just reading the list of, of names but most of the people that were involved in the Iran-Contras and the Nicaraguan, uh, the, the, like, massacre of Nicaragua and the massacre of fucking, like, Colombia and, and, like, all of this fucking, all these awful, awful, awful drug wars and fucking just straight up, you know, I would call it a drug genocide, right? It's a Latino drug genocide. Uh, are not only still in the government today, but they're actually at a higher, they got promotions for it. 
they're fucking they're they're now they're paradigms of like of western thought people think of these people as geniuses that they're that that's the that's the top that's to be the that those guys are untouchable because where you need conspiracy analysis because if you look at the Taliban, you look at 9-11, you look at all of these fucking things that don't seem interconnected, they are interconnected by the CIA, right? And and the fact, when you say stuff like that, it makes you sound crazy. It makes you sound like fucking Alex Jones. And the reason it makes you sound like Alex Jones is that's by design. They do that so that way you cannot actually talk about these things in a critical manner. You cannot be critical of this stuff without sounding like a complete fucking nut job. And it's, it's... you know, it's what I said earlier, a wilderness of mirrors. You're constantly finding yourself not being able to point in any direction because that direction either points in, it points back to you or it points at a completely different direction. Like, if you were to just think about it logically, what the fuck does 9-11 have to do with communists in 1945 in Italy, right? Yeah, what the fuck does the Vatican have to do with the bank of BCCI, the bank, uh, which is a Pakistani bank which helped fund fucking uh, the, the Iran-Contras, which have eventually led to the conflict in Afghanistan, which eventually led to uh, Osama bin Laden bombing or ordering the bombing of of the Twin Towers, right? Which actually also ties into the Cyrano brothers who did the Boston bombing. (laughs) Like, what do the Chechnyans have to do with this? What does uh, Gulan, uh, what was that fucking guy's name? Something, Fatula Fatula Gulan from... from Syria and Assad, what do they have to fucking do with anything? What does Slobodan Milosevic have to do with fucking anything of this stuff? And it makes you feel like a fucking crazy person. It makes you feel schizophrenic, and that is by design, right? It's 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 all meant to obfuscate the the simple fact that the uh, the American the American machine, right? The American uh, I guess can like can. Uh, the CIA is a, both a conspiracy mill, but it's also the protector of the real America. Because to them, the real America is American business interest, right? Not the Americans, not, they're not operating at the, at the, on the whim that Americans need protection from the outside world. That's not how they're operating. Instead, they're, what they're doing is they're infiltrating their, like, a, like an octopus, they're all over the world doing what is best to make sure that American business interests stay at the top, the top level, the top tier, right? 60% of Americans love the CIA. That's horrifying because none of them actually know what the CIA does. They know they did a bunch of wacky stuff in the 60s, like, like spike people's uh, drinks with LSD and stuff, and to them it seems like fun stories. But the reality of what they were doing was either they were doing an amazing fucking version of like seeing ahead 30 years and doing PR, or what they were actually doing was they were actually trying to figure out if you can actually break reality. If you can fucking, if you can get people to expand their consciousness to a point where madness takes hold, or not madness, but like a complete, if you get enough people to break from reality, can you get a separate kind of reality, which is what liberals live in. All of, all of, None of what, like, none of what happens here happens in a bubble, right? None of, none of, uh, no operations happen in a bubble. And in fact, I would even argue that no operations officially end. They continue going on in a different way, right? They change, they, maybe they change the nature of how they operate, but they never truly end, right? Like, you hear the story, the, what is that movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats? where the CIA was trying to get people to use mind powers and stuff like that. And so they were doing all this weird hippie stuff. I don't think they changed that. I don't think that they, 
I don't think that that's something that they stopped doing. In fact, I would say what they did instead was realize that the way to do it is technologically. All right, School of Americas. It got rebranded, actually, subject to rebranding. So now it's called the Western Hem Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. So it happened in 1946, the United States Army founded the Latin American Training Center Ground Division uh, at Fort Amador in the Panama Canal Zone to centralize the administrative tasks involved in training increasing number of Latin Americans attending the U.S. service schools in the Canal Zone. The school trained Latin American military personnel to use artillery and advanced weapons purchased from the United States and provided instruction in nation building, which is code word for how to start criminal organized crime essentially nation building is always you have to understand the term nation building is is essentially how to transfer communal wealth commonly held uh, land and infrastructure and privatize it in fact the Nazis had a term for it called uh, uh, reprivatization or something like that reprivatization uh, in German um, and the idea behind it is that uh, to take communal uh, like lands held in common like so like in a feudal society right if you're in like uh, in the slow merge from feudalism to capitalism in, in England for instance um, what the lords did was uh, all land was communal land which meant that you worked on it there wasn't a real like ownership of, of land you just kind of worked it you made you made your whatever you grew you gave a share to the lord right so that's how feudalism works well how feudalism transitions to capitalize or cap capitalism is those lords decided to build fences around land and say this land is now my land and if you want it you either have to a buy it off of me or b rent it from me and so it's something that went from being like completely like nearly free uh to being something that is now pay to play and so uh nation building at its core is about the idea of taking things that are held in common which is like you know the the jungle the jungles in Nicaragua or the fucking uh, or the steppes the, where they grow all of the fucking uh, all of the agriculture out there I can't remember what it's called it was like a, a plateau flatland in 1950, I think, uh, the Nicaraguan government decided to just seize it and say, no, this is our land now, and if you want to fucking, you can buy it. You can buy it off of us. And how they did that in the 50s is they were trained in the 40s by the Americans. The Americans showed them how to do that, right? Anyways. And going to, like, the, so they, they just fucking, uh, they taught people... Uh, they taught people how to fucking murder, torture, kill uh, peasants and commoners, and uh, Nicaragua was their testing ground of like how they how they fucking. It was the most brutal testing ground, right? It was one of the more brutal uh, schools of not schools in the Panama, but it was like it was a more brutal testing grounds of of what actually worked, and to this day Nicaragua still has is still in like. Uh, tumbles. It's actually getting out now. It's getting a little bit better, but not by much. And a lot of that has to do. And in fact, like like Venezuela, uh, and it's it's current. Like uh, it had a run in the news for a while, a couple like about like like what 10, 15 news cycles ago, like a while ago, right? Like um, it had a run in the news, and the run in the news was purely about how socialism can't work because look at Venezuela. 
But if you actually take a look at Venezuela, what you're seeing is a lot of American interference and uh, influence peddling within fucking meddling. What the what the what uh, American liberals are obsessed with Russians doing currently here in America, they're talking about they're doing it in real life. Built so you can't see it. It looks it looks like uh, the School of Americas even. Even though it does have an ominous fucking tonation to it, it's purely because we know enough about that. Because if you were to sell that outside, if you were to say the School of Americas is actually, it sounds like, well, they're trying to show people how to nation build. When you say things like nation build, it, it has a positive spin to it. And that's why it's, it's built that way. Here's a fun little fact. In 1963, officials renamed the facility the U.S. Army School of the Americas to better reflect its hemispheric orientation. Right? <laughs> not, not the fact that, you know, America's fucking all up. Yeah, how, part of how the Ameri how America gets, or how the CIA effectively gets people to turn against their own countries and work for them and normalize the working for them and, and is, is through the propagation of the American dream, right? The, the idea that you individually work hard enough to deserve better a better life in America. The biggest threat, I would say, the biggest threat to like international communism, or not communism, but the international like workers movement or created by, created and propagated by America, right? And utilized by the CIA, utilized by them. Right? It, it's, a, it's a CIA tactic to go to another country and say, hey, you're a go-getting motherfucker. How would you like to run drugs for America and make tons of money? The young man who was trafficking in drugs in South Central Los Angeles that were being sold to him by Mr. Norman Manessis and Mr. Danilio Vandone. This drug trafficking operation out of two hangars using Contra Supply Network as a route for shipping drugs into the United States. LAPD officer Mike Rupert, who states he was forced to leave the LAPD after he uncovered a connection between the CIA and narcotic trafficking operations in California and Louisiana after being convicted of smuggling 704 kilos of cocaine with his partner Norwin Manessis work for the Contras and that his drug trafficking operation had the support of the CIA and passing on the funds to support country groups who were connected to Carlos Lederer, a Colombian drug dealer and co-founder of the Medellin Cartel. It was through Lederer's private island that the Medellin Cartel moved massive amounts of cocaine to Miami and the United States. I did not know at that time that there was any money involved. I only knew that we had received our $12 million for the weapons which we had agreed to sell. The passing of the baton of responsibility went from the Cali cartel to the Sandinistas and Contras. And for some reason, they started taking over everything. And they weren't easy to deal with because they weren't drug dealers and they weren't money launderers. Those people were paying for a war. And their approach to things was violent and it was crude and rude. And I wasn't really used to it. And I felt... 
if you ended up in the Nicaraguans' hands, it's because the Colombians felt you weren't worthy of being part of their cartel anymore. You basically were dumped off to the low end of the, of the street. Not that Nicaragua's the low end, it's just that Colombians didn't have a use for you anymore, and if you, they're going to throw you to the dogs. These people were not drug dealers. They were not money launderers. These people were terrorists, and that's what they did. And Nicaraguans is a little different deal. Love the people, um, but they weren't business people in the business of contraband, like Kali. Organized crime is a different level than political crime. And po political crime and political objectives are much different than organized crime. Being in the mob pays a lot better than it is working for the U.S. government as an operative. They don't seem to give a good deal. And I noticed that the government always has some carrot dangling on a stick and a rope around a person's neck. Well, with the Nicaraguans, I sure, surely see how it was laid out. They, they basically were funded by U.S. government and they were not given a really good deal. I never seen, never seen a Nicaraguan, I'll say it again, uh, driving a Ferrari, but I did see the Clemens doing it. I never seen them get rich from it. I never seen them get nothing but victimized and then recirculated in the system. And then the amounts of bail that they would have to pay when they did get caught were so absolutely high figures that it was unfathomable to think of it. And they would literally have to pay for it through the proceeds of these transactions in LA and, and, and areas like that. There were so many moves made, so many hustles, so many transactions to get themselves out of the trouble that they really were in a paradigm of trap of political warfare that was, to me, I wouldn't even get involved in it. How did you know this was because that's all they would do is perseverate on their political problem, their political situation, and the things they had to do. And how that their parents were held back and who was killed over there in Nicaragua and how they fled the U.S. And, and, and you know, how they were having to stick, you know, to the program that, that, that there was no, they were cornered. I know that there's Contras that are, that are participating participants with the U.S. government. I know they're Sandinistans if they're not. And I know people that are in the same family that are both. I know brothers that, that one is a Contra, one's a Sandinistan. And uh, I see... ...is pretty much the link between the two. And there's a one who went down for kilos and, and they were going to throw the key away and all of a sudden goes to prison and comes back and they spent millions of dollars getting back. So basically... I worked to get the back for them. The Colombians farmed me off to them. And they've always been good to me and always liked me to this day. He found a way. Well, a, but we can't talk about it on the podcast, right? No, because right now married married a, uh, a U.S. got smart. Gotcha. He was a user. used black people in Seattle to move all the crack to all cocaine. He was the... Todd Spencer. It's pretty, pretty together. It's the of, of, of the of. way smarter all.
this is the mid 80s. I noticed their first impact was probably going to be in about 1984. Before that, it was the Cuban Magalitos. The Colombians one time were doing a delivery that I, I didn't know anything about, and it was at a popular nightclub, and the police were chasing the Nicaraguans. And so they stashed their delivery, and I seen it. I was not a part of this transaction. I went and grabbed that and ran on foot from one part of downtown Seattle all the way to the Nicaraguans' house and gave them their stuff. And those Nicaraguans were overwhelmed with that. They thought that was insane. Yes, the police were chasing me on foot for miles. I got away with it. They got their stuff. The Colombians weren't that happy about it. They're like, they wouldn't do it for the, the Nicas. Uh, but the Nicaraguans, they thought that was heroic, and they, they really did trust me. And from that moment on, the Colombians were just pissed off at me because they really didn't give a shit. They didn't care much. They're a little bit conflicting with the Nicaraguans, and um, Nicaraguans were not... I'm going to be kind about the way I put this, because Colombians had a finesse to them. Champagne and caviar. Uh, Nicaraguans were terrorists, and their situation was much different. And if we really look at it back, to, back home where they were, there was a war going on, and... Things were happening, and drugs were a way of supporting their, their war economy. Um, the, the Nicaraguans did that I felt was any different than, than the Colombians was, is that Nicaraguans would trade arms. That we would trade arms with them. I would trade arms with them. I'm not going to disclose where I got large amounts of arms, but I get U-Haul trucks full of arms and ammunition, and those were traded to the Nicaraguans. I don't have the number, and I don't remember the number. Cash is king, and I just didn't, I always felt the gun that you sold could be the gun that's used against you, and these were brand new ones in the package, piled to the top. And um, to me, I felt I was being unloaded somebody's problem, and and I was unloading it on the Nicaraguans, and I couldn't wait to get that away from me. It's not my area of expertise, and I felt very uncomfortable with it. Arms part was separate. How they got the arms out of here, whatever the Nicaraguans did with it, I don't know. I never asked. Uh, they had their moments. Weapons things is real brief, real, real, real dump, brief. pump and dump. And the people that give them to me are still uh, in operation. I can't really reveal them. No. Private gun manufacturers releasing uh, large amounts of guns. Private gun manufacturers, pe people that manufacture gun factories here in America will release large amounts of guns. And things were happening and drugs were a way of supporting their, their war economy. Well, Contras have a revival lately. I've noticed that they've revived lately, and it's hard for me to talk about it because they're still operative. And because they're still operative and the government's dealing with them, I'm going to stay away from too much Contra or Sandinistan talk. Um, all I can say is this. I'm not choosing sides with one or the other because I know family members that have both. And my way of staying out of the middle of that is, is they have trouble like us all, and they have good moments and bad moments, but they're still operative. They're still operative. So because they're still operative, I can't 
predict what's going on. You don't have to delete it. They're just still offered. I don't know if they're white nationalists. They're Aryan supremacists from, from Idaho. I found them through a fluke. The Columbians had me waiting by their stupid payphone idea one day with a code name, and the phone rang, and I answered it. And the guy said, are you waiting for such and such? And I, it wasn't what I was waiting for, but I said, oh, I might as well just say, yeah, yeah, I am. And so this particular Aryan supremacist showed up, and he says, okay, I got the money, where's the stuff? I go, I don't got no stuff, but I'll go get it. What do you need? Absolute, I believe, fluke. True story. And so it happened in North Seattle and Ballard at a payphone that was random, and the situation was a fluke, and it made me a lot of money. There's Aryan supremacists were actually very, very nice, and they figured, figured me out. Although they always had a... Uh, they would pick different locations, and they'd have a guy with a tripod gun pointed straight at my head the whole time. There was a... There was, they would have their Nazi tattoos and all that, and they'd have that tripod pointed at my head, but they said they loved me and I believed, and they always had a gift for me, and they always figured out things that I was into. And that was really cool, because they'd say, like, you're into cars, and they'd have that gift for a Porsche or something. They, they figured you out pretty well. Um, they weren't worried about money. They told me that um, there's nothing wrong with being proud of being white. They weren't about being racist. They were about being proud of their race. So you never felt like they were... No way. Never felt it at all. Never, you know, I have good gut instincts. These aren't rednecks that are just alcoholics, drinking booze, hating on black people and Jews and Hispanics. That's not what these Aryan supremacists are about. These guys were about being survivalist in the woods. They're from Idaho, and they're proud of their race. And the tattoos are about putting it on their skin. They would say, they're going to put it on your skin if you believe whatever you say, because you can't erase that. So they were proud, and they explained it to me as this. They would say my, my long name, um, which is not an, an American name. They'd say... There's nothing wrong with being proud of our race. We're proud of being white. We're not racist. We're proud of our race. They would, uh, they would buy l large sums of contraband, and in the back room, when they would hand you the money, they didn't really care or count the money. If you wanted to count it, they says good. Then this is if it was going to be hundred grand, then that's all you got was hundred grand. But if you trusted them. They said, the extra's for you. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a gambler. I took a chance. I said, okay, then I won't count it. And sure enough, it'd be like $18,000 over. Of course, the money was bank money. It was robbery money. It had die packs. And when people rob banks, the money's got like this paint on it, red paint or whatever, or different colors. I can't really remember the colors. I think red was one of them. Blue was another one. So were the Crips and Bloods. They gave me bank robbery money. Oh yeah, those those kids, those are kids who had bank robbery money during the eighties. 
How do you know it's bank robbery money? Because the bomb, the bomb, the, the die bomb. How do you know it's bank robbery money? B die bomb. Um, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but these happen to be bank robbers. So I don't know how they're so clever, but they got away with it for a long time. And there was no facilities. They always met me in empty apartments throughout different cities. All I know is you got a, you got a tripod with a machine gun on it, point at your head, and if you want to fuck up, you're going to be dead. Where I lost contact with them was, is they found a larger market dealing with methamphetamine than they did with the Colombians had, and their market changed. They evolved into methamphetamine. Bam was a great way to launder money, and if you wanted to have fancy cars and you wanted a safe house, uh, if those people who understand what a safe house is, uh, I don't know if they use that term anymore, but a safe house is a place where you could lay your head at night with all your material assets that had no involvement in drugs. Only your fancy cars, your watches, your gold, your T-bills, your neighbors were all sweet and dandy and they were wealthy and you were wealthy and they didn't know what you did and you flew into your safe house and you lived a good safe life. If you did not get involved with anything to do with street people or anything and you were safe. It's called a safe house. It's going to be in Portland, Oregon where you're laundering money because there's no taxes on cars and stuff and most of the safe houses that, that I took care of, safe houses, we're going to be places you didn't have to claim taxes, and Oregon was a great place. You could buy you a Porsche, Ferrari, whatever, not claim those taxes. It works, but the ineffectiveness is when the DEA has a trace on you. Uh, straw corporations, they tried that one on me, and they could not pull up any straw corporations, but I did have to be uh, go to court on it. And, and they couldn't prove it, but I was uh, allegated to have straw corporations. And, and I did have them, but they didn't pull. I've been tried and convicted, and I was not guilty. But the only way you're going to be able to launder money is to be able to pay, pay the, the Colombians a partial amount of their money back. And, and the rest is your cost, whether it be losses or gains for you, is your business. They don't care. I'd have bags of money, and they'd take it away. I would just use my legitimate wealthy friends to say they gave me the money as a, as a gift and get that money right back to me. Every cent of it, counted bill by bill. You got to buy your new Porsche out of it, or Ferrari, whatever you want, or put money towards a house. Titles are dangerous. Car titles are a little bit safer. House titles are dangerous because if the DA did a background check and you couldn't prove IgG ill-gotten gains or ill-gotten goods, you're you're going to get your stuff taken away and you're going to have to defend your money. Aurora was about stop spending money on hotels and um, start buying my own place because I did the math and uh, housing escort girls in hotels was beginning to be a circus act and the best way to do it was being an escort service owner was to purchase a property that could be my own hotel and the money would go towards myself so I could help raise my kid myself and um, unfortunately through uh, uh, 
the hotel that our property for sale was through a DEA bust on a um, uh, marijuana grow shop, which is well known in Seattle. And that bust, uh, that person relinquished their ownership of the property, little to know that the DEA kind of let me purchase this property with illicit funds so that they could keep on top of the hornet's nest, me. And um, the DEA paid my rent for over a decade. And yes, they sat down with me saying as long as I didn't do anything across their tracks, they weren't going to bust me. They knew about the Colombians, and they had photos of the Colombians counting money, and they would use it against me. And I'm like, look, why would you guys let me be in this property and risk my son and me to be in this environment in the first place? You know, I think it really is immoral, but they had me over the barrel, so we looked the other way, both of us. The DEA popped into the in and out. I'm going to say in and out of the scene, but knowing who they were without having exact proof was amazingly difficult but possible. And once you knew who they were, they really threw a baby tantrum on how you got your information. Um, it was amazing how once you called their their bluff on being a DEA agent, how they would they would actually stop everything. Um, I can remember an incident where they all poured out of a house. Um, I'm not a violent person, but I did hold a gun against a DEA agent's head, saying, "Don't not to bother me anymore." I knew he's an agent, and every single house on the block poured out with with the man in blue, as his code word was. And uh, there was never a consequence of that, except on paper and litigation. The DEA really makes sure that you wind yourself in a tight little web so that when you are in trouble, good luck getting out of trouble. Um, the reason why I'm able to do this interview is I have been tried and convicted. Um, there's some things that, that I can't say, but I'm not going to mention names, times, and places. Undercover informant. How can you tell undercover informants? Well, the Colombians had a staff of lawyers and inside people. The Kali cartel had integrity. Now, people are gonna, who, who listen to this and have been in the Kali cartel will probably agree with me about this. People who have been in the Madagin cartel, you're a little rougher around the edges. Usually the robberies would happen would end up, the person that's going to rob a large amount of this has inside information. Usually they fumbled the ball and they would end up getting busted because they don't understand the distribution of it. They're not going with the Colombian cartel. They're going on their own whim of what they can distribute. And that's how they get wrapped up. Well, the, the name of the game here was to stay away from the government. Once you knew that they're on you and you were hot, it was really your responsibility to not get involved anymore. You had to drop out of the game. But, of course, 
lure of easy money always is the one that pulls people back into it. When the government was p- trying to penetrate your your operation, is is kind of almost psychic or it's behavioral. Uh, the DEA didn't act right. You know, DEA was like, well, how do you know we're DEA? What made you say we're DEA? Well, when you're sitting there at a high-end restaurant and you have people behind you, you always bring a person to watch your back. and You make sure that he's there a half hour early. You pay that person well. And you just watch the environment and... One thing the DEA does different than a real person in the cartel is the DEA pushes you and challenges you. Well, come up with it or show us what's real or, or, you know, they challenge you to show off like that's not the way it works. And then when it comes time to pay the bill, that was for the restaurant. It was really weird. If they're really a bala and they're really rolling and they're that important, they wouldn't look in their wallet and count the money like it's a per diem. It's too clinical. It's too pragmatic. It's too government-like. Let me tell you, when you're sitting down with a cartel member, they shit money. They have lots of money. They're not going to be counting what's in their damn wallet. In fact, you're basically laundering money every time you spend it. You can't wait to damn spend this stuff. The sooner you get that money off you, the more you got away with the crime. So really... DEA, you're lacking there, and I hate to say it, but you just turn yourself in by doing that, and when the litigation came down, you come up with all these lies and excuses, but to be honest with you, that behavior there has no flow or continuity to it. DEA agent's different than an informant or an affiant. DEA agent's going to count his money like if that's his per diem, it's clinical, and he's adding in his head. It's not normal behavior. It's office behavior. If you carry that office behavior with you, you're going to set off the wrong signals, of course. I would hire people to look for the police and they would, the police would eavesdrop in and they would have recordings and they would sit on the table. You'd find a, you go, I would pick a fine restaurant and it would always be like a week before the meeting and you, I knew that I already knew I was dealing with the DEA agent and it was just ironic to watch how they would set up a table next to me and the waiter and everybody that was working for the police. And that when, before you even made the meeting, if you were like to leave your house and go to Safeway, uh, I would, I would have a camera recording and they would pop up and look at my house through the windows and stuff, not knowing that I, w- I already had an edge on them. How I had the edge is by their behavior. How did I know the DEA agents? By their behavior. It's kind of psychic, but it's their behavior. The behavior was too clinical and too pragmatic. People, once again, who are laundry money, who are making real easy money, and, and are that chaotic, basically don't have the structure of a DEA agent. And the rules are so hard for a DEA agent to make a bust that they have to follow those rules. And you can see their mechanicalness through them. If you're, if you're, if you're sober, you can see this. I, I can see if they get you drunk. And I do remember the DEA sending over people with booze to give me. I never drank. I wouldn't want to party with them. I had nothing in common with that. 
they did like to lay down booze. Booze is legal. They could not give you drugs, but they could give you booze and get you all, all, all softened up. But it didn't work with me. I'm a non-drinker. Uh, and that w always worked in my favor, and I'm thankful that I that was a non-drinker, and I was never really part of that. But the, the DEA would lay down a lot of booze. They really wanted you to drink with them, you know, get loose and kind of uh, get into the... Get into this, this, you know, losing your inhibitions stuff. Not me. The DEA can plant seeds to where there's jealousy. Uh, one of the dirtiest tricks was if you had a wife or a girlfriend, if they were just ready to bust you, they'd show your wife pictures of you with another girl, and that wife would start singing like a bird, and you are screwed. DEA does those dirty tricks, and they will show the photos, and they will humiliate you and you will be screwed and good luck getting your your wife may not be able to testify you in a court of law but she just opened and spilled her guts to the point to where you wish you you would have never ever had another girlfriend and so they will do those tricks to you and they do get they do get away with it all the time police use women all the time um I've had some very, very good fortunate luck that I've had police women sit in my Corvette convertible and say, I just want you to know I've been uh, undercover capacity for the police department and um, I'm not going to arrest you today. Show me a badge and say you're, you're a single father, you're doing a great job. Um, for that, we're not going to arrest you, but your partners will be arrested. The dirtiest trick I've seen U.S. government do is displace people. They would take you uh, against your will and drop you off in some country or some place in the United States with no money uh, in your sh Bermuda shorts in the snow and make you find your way back home. And that humility and that kind of behavior is their idea. I don't know if they think it's funny or if that's the way they do things, but they do those things. And if you've heard those stories, they're true. Oh, you could be uh, you could be on an airplane in an international flight, and the next thing you know is Interpol will just pluck you off that airplane and um, search your luggage and take away all your money and make you prove that it's not yours. Yeah, don't prove it's yours. Prove it's not yours, and. Um, get you wrapped up in some legal litigation to where you just don't even care about the money anymore and then leave you without a ticket home and a, and a way home or your passport and you're stranded. Uh, those situations have happened to me personally and they leave you really in an ambiguous situation. Um, if a person doesn't have the right resources, you're going to be pretty screwed. Um, I don't know... These days, how they do it, but I've heard cases where in Iran or India and stuff like that happens. Uh, but back then, it was in, in places that you went to, you basically were followed and stripped of your money and your, your identity, and you had to, to figure out your way out of that box. The uh, government, the DEA, um, I review their paperwork intensively, and they do make up stories, and they do... They want to bust so bad, and if an officer is truly a DEA agent, not an informant or an affiant, but an agent, he wants to put a case together that sticks, but he's going to add stuff in there to make it sound bigger than it is, 
and uh, he's going to speculate and he's going to add things to to your your the affidavit that's used against you in court. And if you're not represented well, you're going to go down for some stuff that really didn't happen. Uh, it could even sound very glamorous too. You could you you can they can make you feel like you're bigger than you are, and you're going to go for that, but you're going to do some time with it. Revealed that to me in about a hundred-page document when they took me to court and tried to bust me, and I got away with just possession. When they tried to get me for distribution, multi-state. How they said they knew and how they knew is two different things. They what they said they knew was a lot of it was lies, a lot of it was uh, spending large amounts of sums of money, showing off, big shot syndrome. Uh, if you weren't using the drug and you weren't drinking, you were basically materialistic and showing off. And showing off is showboating will sink your ship. And I was a bit of a show off. It did alert. It did alert uh, certain channels. But uh, ultimately, if somebody gets busted, they're going to say, "Look at so and so. Look at so and so." Why do they have so much? What do you think's going on? The DEA would fly over in their little tiny dinky planes trying All I could say is their behavior was so obvious to me. The only thing that I could say was is one time my friend answered the phone and said, oh, it's the DEA agent again. And when I answered, oh, hey, how are you doing? Why did you... Why did your friend say that? I go, what do you mean say that? He just says D agent. How did he know that information? I'm here at Denny's waiting for you. I just flew in a little Cessna. I'm ready for the shipment. I'm standing in front of a million dollars worth of product. And I ain't giving him nothing. Zero. I know exactly what he is. Exactly what he wants and he doesn't know enough to even be privy to what I have. So I'd rather... Not, uh, I'd rather starve than give that particular D agent anything. And he was supposed to be a medal award winning agent that uh, was undercover capacity and had medals of honor. And he's a Vietnam uh, a soldier that turned to D agent and up and down. But I'm sorry, his protocol was so stringent that he was obvious. And his little airplane didn't didn't fly with me. Uh, his, his pressure and stress got to the point where he was so eager for a bus that he started getting forceful. And he sent an undercover agent to my private house who was offering booze. He sent a Cuban undercover operative. And um, that person was actually an um, a, uh, affiant, according to the paperwork. Uh, description of Affian is a person undercover capacity trying to penetrate the Central Core organized network. That didn't fly with me either, and they were stressing me. And I just finally had to whip out a machine gun against their Affian and say, you know what, I want you away from me. I don't know why you're asking me for drugs. I don't know why you're asking me questions that are personal, and you need to go away. And all of a sudden he said, I'm with the men in blue, and they poured out of Police poured out of every direction in every corner. They never did anything to me for that. They revealed themselves. They tried to get my neighbors to to 
for me to confess that I own land and property and businesses, and I finally all added up that I was being um, surveillance for quite some time. I know when the Secret Service would come in and bust my doors down looking for the Nicaraguans, they said drugs weren't anything. They're nothing at all. We're not here for... They'd just take the drugs and, and they'd wipe them off the counter with their bare hands, which you'd think they would get a contact high on that. And and they would just dump it on the floor and, and laugh and say that that ain't shit to them. They're looking for Contras and Sandinistans. And in the end, they're giving them medals of honor for their behavior. So um, they were just trying to accumulate their soldiers, you know. Um, I did watch many times where the, the police would surround my, uh, my facilities and they'd be completely circle the whole, whole house, our hotel, down completely in a full circle, ready to bat around the doors. And in one phone call, the Nicaraguans, they'd back off like it was a ghost. Nicaragua would say, stop worrying. It's not a problem. Stop worrying. Don't worry. It's nothing. It's nothing. And the police would go away. Once you knew that was happening, you were in so deep. Uh, all I could think of was iguanas. That's the only thing that came to my mind was iguanas. They would kind of stoop low, and they would stick out their tongue, and they looked, they looked thirsty, but they weren't. That's all I could say. Uh, laws and legality, uh, being able to work your round this puzzle that was going on is several areas. What area of litigation you're involved in and what you're doing. If you're a courier, the laws are distribution and um, possession. If you're a money launderer, it's about uh, fraud and using the bank system uh, if you are um, a um, if you're a mob boss and you're making decisions, uh, I don't know what the legal term is for that, but you are part of a conspiracy. Uh, the bigger you are, the less you're the harder you're going to fall, and the less you're going to touch. That a lot of these big guys never even seen the product that they were uh, orchestrating the moves on, and they did a lot of time. And if you ever did go to jail, believe it or not, there was a person in jail already waiting. It was scary to think of it, but the minute you went to jail, there was actually somebody in there already waiting for you to see if you were going to talk and stuff. It would shock you because there would be a Nicaraguan sitting there uh, you that you knew on the outside. They got into that cell before you even got processed. That is spooky, and that occurs. And how U.S. government was involved um, was in the late 90s to 2000, things started busting at the seams. That's when you start losing con control. People don't want to be loyal anymore. They um, got out of hand. They were 
not dressing themselves well anymore. They weren't buying cars anymore. They were misappropriating funds. They weren't bathing well. They weren't, their self-esteem was not even close to the same. Their thought process was different. Their organization skills were totally obliterated. Uh, they were recluse. They would hide. They would not answer the phone or the door for days or hours. They would misappropriate funds. Um, trust was down. Behavior was chaotic. It was unpredictable. And um, it, was, it was really obvious when it hit, it did blow the seams off of everything. I don't know where it came out of. I do remember shipments got thrown in the water accidentally and stuff, and they had chemists, these German chemists, try to salvage large amounts, millions of dollars worth of contraband that they got wet, and they brought it to basic form. I guess that could be the way it surfaced, just trying to salvage it. Um, you know, it's just a hard area. Uh, I, 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 I'm not going to point fingers to Nicaraguans, but that seemed to be their area's expertise. And um, it, I had to abstain my involvement with, with that. I felt, I felt the danger was too high for me. And I noticed things didn't go right. They just didn't go right. People didn't act right. Things started going wrong. It busted at the seams. And that fantasy ended with crack. Crips and Bloods were basically running crack houses and when they would buy large amounts of stuff, they would exchange it. When I noticed when they would buy large amounts of stuff, if you could get them, if you could get them in a position where you could trust them, which was not easy to do, you had to know who you're dealing with. Uh, anytime they were at that level, they were good to go, 100% awesome, best. Um, a lot of the money they exchanged was died lots from bank robberies. And um, it was never counterfeit money. Counterfeit money did happen on my lap several times, and that's a great way to get killed by um, whoever's the money was going to. So you wanted to avoid that counterfeit money. Uh, Crips and Bloods, they had dilated money from bank robberies, but they were okay to deal with. Uh, how you drop out of business with them is, is after a while, you, you, their stuff was just so scandalous. You just, you just can't go on anymore because they were shoot their gang wars. If you were wearing the wrong color that day, you, you, you contradicted your your business. What about this Colin. thing? Can you talk about the thing on the podcast? I don't really know. Colin. Well, I know he came in. He came to our match, and he's the one who said, "Okay, we're gonna do an arms deal. Go ahead, go through with it." Take your risk, take your chances, because the Chinese are the ones who brought me American arms and Czechoslovakian arms. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, uh, they brought Uzis too, which is from Israel. Can you talk oh, about brand new in the box? So you can't talk. You can't in the box. They're not. It, it is not a dead end. It's just something that I don't know. I just suspect that he came in at a cerebral level to watch how much these people to go report to U.S. government how much. Um, Garrett and Josh misbehaving. And this is a Nicka once, right? How, yeah, how, how, how the Nickas were, were ma managing the drug part of it and how they're mismanaging the drug part of it and how out of control it was. That's when the Secret Service came in our house, remember? At 
you remember when you were a kid and the Secret Service came to their house and they handcuffed me and put me on the floor and used vinyl straps and and uh, sent, put me in jail. I ended up doing 99 days. I almost did federal time. They knocked it to state time in Oregon. It had to do with them looking for Sandinistans. For Todd. They were looking for Todd. So there was drugs in the room. They got to drugs and they says, you think we want drugs? Fucking drugs ain't shit. The Secret Service, they took, they took cocaine, they just threw it on the floor and then they um, vinyl strapped me to the floor and you're kicking them. Sean was kicking them. This Secret Service, okay? And then the police came and the police said, look, we're not, we're not, this level is so high. Chad. This is a Secret Service. We're just police. We're Seattle Police Department. We're just like, this. look at us like bus, we're the bus, we're just basically like a bus to carry you off to wherever prison they're going to block you guys in. And then, so then they send in this one guy and he is from the CIA and he's talking to Secret Service and he says, we're not here for drugs, we're here for Nickas or Nicaraguans. And so the Cuban gets put in one section. Gringo gets put in one section. Colin. He was uh, trained by, by some government. He was more formal. He was here in the USA, probably for the contract. Yeah, those, those guys were mopped out probably about 1996. They surfaced and then they disappeared and they went back. They were definitely smarter. Those guys were together. But never, they weren't. The drugs were so excited, and they couldn't, couldn't. I don't think that they could just put the, the picture together very well. They, they couldn't. They, they couldn't get why drugs were involved. They didn't understand that. They weren't drug. They couldn't hit the streets really well. They were pol pol political soldiers. Drugs didn't make sense to them. Came up the Royal Mansion. His crews came up there, and they were they were uh, delegating the arms deals behind the scenes, and a little bit too clean cut for for dealing with what I was used to. But you know, I was like, what's going on here? But what you didn't see, and you still don't see, is you never see Nicaraguans have any real financial gain from it. Now, if you want to know who a trained Nica Chase. Chase. You ever heard of Chase? Uh, you know, there's a whole block owned by them. That family there was hired by the U.S. government in Nicaragua. Can you talk about that? They don't come kick our windows in because they. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't kind of talk to that. He, he guessed. I don't believe in coincidences. I think once, like I said before, all all roads will lead to organized crime. If there is one thing coming through, the other's going to come through, and the other thing's going to come through, and pretty soon your antiques and artifacts are going to come through the tunnel, and the weapons are going to go through the other end, and the drugs are going to come through that end, and kidnap people are going to come through that end and political refugees are going to come they're all all these roads are going to intersect so those people that are listening to this who really are involved whether you're in the laws aspect of it or if you're uh, on the mobster side of it you know what i'm talking about and those people who have 
have no idea, just figure it out. I mean, all these, all roads are going to lead together. They're going to intersect. Do they bump heads? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. How do you avoid these situations is, is you stay up a lot of the time thinking about things. But what you don't want to do is be at a mental capacity where you can't handle things. If you can't handle it, get out of the kitchen because it can get really hot. Uh, as Nicaraguans remind me of iguanas, they looked fierce, but there's some, something about them that was harmless. Uh, it always blew my mind, and they never used that as a threat. They always thought that I was being a jumpy person, but how was I to know that they were being guarded by the U.S. government? They never said that. Their actions clearly showed that. And, uh, of course, I was jumpy. You know, I got everything to lose. And they would take over my, my environment. And Clemens had warned me, be careful. They're going to take over your environment. And they did. And it wasn't one of them. It was 30 of them. All armed, all dangerous, all on point, all working with the U.S. government. I don't need... If I get drugged to court tomorrow, I'm just going to say, you know the U.S. government, you did it. And you Nicaraguans know you did it. You too know you do it. And if I got involved with you, I guess I'm stupid or I got involved and that's my fault. And that's the way it goes. But no big harm came out of it, but it did get me put in jail and it got me in trouble. And that's what they want. Prison, they're going to block you guys in. And then, so then they send in this one guy and he is... CIA and he's talking to Secret Service and he says we're not here for drugs we're here for Nicas or Nicaraguans and so the Cuban gets put in one section and the gringo gets put in one section but I had instincts and I knew that if I slept in my bed that night I'd be killed so I stuck I said Fred I'll give you a hundred bucks to sleep in my bed because something's wrong. And he goes, what What, are you, what, what makes you say something's wrong? I go, because every single power tonight is in this room. And it's really weird. There's like a dry spell, and then all of a sudden there's this hesitance. And the Cuban's going, coño, Santa Maria, coño, something's wrong. And he's going fucking crazy. The Cuban's driving me fucking out of my fucking brain. And then we got an Argentinian in the room. We got a Venezuelan in the room. We got a Cuban in the room. We got a Nicaraguan in the room. We got a Colombian in the room. I'm the only fucking guy that's fucked up in the gringo. Fred, Fred. Who's in the room? And I said, if we make it past tonight, past six in the morning, there is a God and there's miracles. 558, 559, boom, 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 boom. Doors come in, windows break, Secret Service, we're the Secret Service. Fuck. City of Seattle Police Department is in the background. We'll hold the hands there going, we're not here, but just, just, that's it. All the SWAT team vans, everything. Well, I'm sitting in a fucking room in jail downtown, in a private room, and I go, I am so on tape right now. They got a phone in the room, and they got me in the room. Okay, I get on the phone and go, Wah! 
thank you. Fuck no. No thank you. No way. This is funny. This is two days. They haven't given me nothing to eat. I've been standing on my head upside down in this room in cities or some jail underneath the city of Seattle. It's not even the city. It's federal jail. I'm in a federal jail downstairs sitting upside my head and they ain't said a word to me. They left me and the phone alone. Hmm. Jeez, I'm really bored. Okay. Can I call for a pizza here? They have not been. No pizza. Okay, okay. They're going to use the food tactic on me next. Food tactic. I know. I know. I know my shit must be pretty fucking good right now. Because they haven't asked me a question. They're just sitting there watching me in a room recording everything that I do. So, basically... If I get away with this, I got paid all that money all this time. I just do nothing. Now, it's a great opportunity to get sleep. Then they send in a guy says he's been following me for years. And I go, oh yeah, I know that guy. They can hire out to court on that. They had a DEA agent. He was an undercover DEA agent. I know that shit. And he's like, extradite him. Take him to Oregon. Take him to Oregon. And so I go to Oregon to sit there in state prison for 99 days, which is for babies. Ladies in there and all kinds of weird shit. And they let me go. And I go, just because those niggas, all this happened. And in the end, the niggas never went to any jail. They just wanted to take those weapons away from the Nicaraguans. They did not want them to have any way to overpower whoever or whatever. They couldn't be that powerful. You know, you couldn't give them that much power. The U.S. government would give them that much So now the Cuban says what he says, and the Greek said he says what he says, and of course Seattle Gang Task Force says what they say, and then they put me on a label. I get to Oregon and they say, I am in a gang. I'm like, what? You got, what, eight different Latin versions in the room and I'm in a gang? Yes. Chad. He's in a gang and the gang's called the Kamikazes because he used a machine gun in 1982 against some, some grips and some bloods. I'm like, I use a machine gun in my defense against these people from L.A. But, that doesn't make me a game. But at that time, Intel told them that I had associated the Japanese Yakuza's in Seattle with the Chinese. Yes, I hung out with both of them. Welcome to Beacon Hill. You know, they, they don't really get along too cohesively either, but I was in between, I was neither one, but I had no problem with it, and of course the Yakuza member who died, we don't know to this day who got murdered, this really bothers me because there's a missing link to that story, and I wish they'd find out what really happened, because that's unsolved, that's an unsolved mystery to this day.
and it affects Beacon Hill a lot. Garrett knows all about him. He fears his subject. And I think Garrett he knows more than he'll ever reveal. And I think it's life changing for Garrett. Hmm. And I think it breaks Garrett's heart. And I was a suspect for the murder too. But remember the timeline. They had me locked up when this guy got murdered. So they're like about 96 or 97, right? So while they were trying to put fear in me, they were locking me away from my worst nightmares, really. They were saving my life, actually, in a lot of ways. They didn't realize, and I didn't realize, fate. Maybe my mother had the blessings to just keep me safe, because this got really dangerous. Really dangerous. It got, the situation got dangerous. The situation got real dangerous. I've been trying to get different information than I have for years. And I've never really got it straight, but you got some people that are just getting high and just totally irresponsible falling into that. You got other people that do eat greed and you got other people that fight for their country. And then you have business people. You had business people and, and ones that, that were salted, the ones who pretty much fell through the cracks were the people that were pulling the strings, the American government.
so I, I, I was basically ready for, for the, wouldn't be the first time that I've had tear gas shot into the war match, and, you know, the canisters come through the windows and fill it up with tear gas, you know, I'm ready for all that kind of action. That, that's, that's just a defensive measure, but I made sure that I didn't do anything because I knew that if we had any, any weapons on hand, that was our ass. I've already, let's see, used a machine gun uh, to defend myself against these people from L.A., and then the second time a machine gun was brought out was when Ross. they handed me one. Boy, that's the first time. And the second time was when the, a Cuban informant came to my safe house in Portland. Josh. There and, and Sean as a baby, and there—that was a safe house. All my money and cars and everything in Portland, Oregon. And I was like, "Oh, oh shit! This guy is close to the bees, bees honey, but this is also the bees nest." So I pulled a machine gun out against his head, and I said, "Ma'am, why are you coming to my house? This is where I have my kid and my family." Why are you coming here and making me sell you drugs, man, and all this shit, man, and, and bring me liquor? I don't even drink, man. I don't touch liquor, man. What you trying to fucking do to me? Who are you? Are you the police? And he said, it's all safe. It's all safe. Chad. Has a gun against me to the man in blue. And all of a sudden, people start coming loose. Police start coming out of all the houses in Portland. Every house across me, next to me, helicopters overhead. And I go, wow. I, I think my mother helped me again on that one. But who was the Puerto Rican guy, though? I want to go back to that. Who's, so the, do you know the guy, name? Puerto Rican guy? Puerto Rican guy. I can't that. say his name. He's still out there. He's still part of the U.S. government. Do I know? You don't know him, but you... an intermediary between the U.S. government and the Columbia Cartel. But how did you figure that out? Because he told us. But what, what, how did you... I said, look, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the intermediary right now. Colombians are in court. You're part of the Columbia Cartel. We can't have you talk shit. We need you to stay home right here in your house, here at the Aurora Mansion. Every single buddy involved is being watched. Nobody's going to sleep. Nobody's waking up. These court hearings are going to go on for a long time. We want you to know that your Colombian buddy already spit on the floor. And he's going to get 30 years already. One of your guys. Your other guy, we're, we're just waiting for him to show up. And guess what? They never got him. He got plastic surgery and he changed his, his appearance. He walked up in front of the police in front of all the cameras, all the stuff watching the Aurora match and Hydrotech to be watched on top of it all, right? I remember the DEA's paying my rent. He walked all the way up the stairs and he went, and he shook his head and, I, and his demeanor, oh my God, he looked so different. He went and got plastic surgery, and he's one of the most wanted men in the world. And they didn't know who he was. He had his fingerprints changed. He had his face changed. He had, he ate so much food, he gained weight. He was a different person. 
but he was the same soul, the same swagger, the same demeanor. Imagine changing somebody who you couldn't tell who they were, but you know their personality. Oh, it was a mind blower. And I went to say his name, I went, and he said, it was, it was when the whole world was looking for him. It's when Pablo Escobar was about to get whacked. Pablo Escobar was going to get whacked. He was going to get whacked. And he would spend a lot of money in plastic surgery. Lots of money. So. With the Nicaraguans, they got in situations that I, I really feel, looking in retrospect, that they didn't. And screwed around it too. They didn't get a good. Details. I don't think the U.S. government gave them a good deal at all. I never seen them having. I never seen them driving Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and living in big houses on the waterfront in Miami. And I knew them well enough that they actually were were contributing to their war project and um, really trying to stabilize their 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 families. Uh, and and they never got. They never really got a good deal from the government. I think they were, they were really given a... I don't know the circumstances that brought them here. At what point in negotiations that they actually got brought here as Contras. Um, I really do think the U.S. government basically gave them a bad deal. Unless there's things I don't know that are happening back in Nicaragua where the exodus was a negotiating point for them to put up with the conditions of food stamps and living in public housing and stuff and still doing large-scale drug deals and weapon exchanges. And these people weren't disappearing. They're still around today, and I don't see them financially ahead at all. Um, I've seen them go into exuberant large amounts of sums to bail themselves out of international trade deals, and um, i never seen the Colombians have those problems. Of course... This is a different deal. Um, the m market flooded in the late 80s, so you, actually there was a point to where it really was e almost hard to get rid of the, the, the retail prices were totally blown out of proportion, and then there was a dry spell. That's where the money was really, really made by very smart stri strategic players. But when as far that? as the Kali cartel is concerned... When was that exactly? About 1989, I think the dry spell was. 87, 89, don't quote me on it, but those people that are listening to this that remember it will remember that well. And the problems with the dry spell that happened was is you put money forward and you never got to see it again because people couldn't retrieve any product to make a profit. So there was a lot of real complications. Um, that's the way you get robbed. They pull out a gun, how you pull out a gun. How, how did that story unwrap, unravel if you can detail? I can't detail it because there's people that are okay, currently still involved story. with and I don't um, want to create the conflict and then if I get a hit on me that will be a contract and I won't live just you know that's still pending and we're still very vulnerable pending I can't I can't unwind that it's hard to deal because I still deal with and, I, and it's very hard for me well it's more of a confession and I don't like really confessing but we don't want to get that's why you don't want to do this that's not recording is it it's recording right now don't don't
Well, when the DEA came to bust me, well, because I'm still dealing with these people and still dealing with the situation, I'm not going to give too many details. Well, yeah, somebody's going to whip a gun out to shoot me, and they're a felon, and they're known known. They just got released from prison for people with, and they're when they go to kill you, or they went to kill me for no particular reason, for a big tantrum, they shot themselves in the... And they pulled the gun out, and I called my the doctor to pull the bullet out. And because they're, they're superstitious, so they went to go see a fortune teller, and fortune teller says, don't mess with that guy. If he pulled the bullet out of you, that bullet wasn't meant for him, it was meant for you, so be careful. Uh, you had to go to prison for a short time. Yes, 99 days. That just a bit. Simple possession charge. Yeah. Simple possession before 2000 was it was four months or less, 99 days. Contra thing was upsetting to me. Nicaraguans were trading in weapons, which is way beyond my head because that, all, all I'm doing is working for Colombians and crossing. I knew the Colombians kept saying, why do you get involved with those fuckers? They really didn't have anything to do with the Colombians till a certain point happened and then the baton got handed over. And I thought that was occurring with the Mexicans and it didn't. Mexicans, I predicted, would take over, and they did, and they rule right now. Um, I, I, I did forecast or predict that the Mexicans would take over the market, and Colombians really were agitated with me at that, but I, I knew that Mexicans were the gatekeepers and that we always had to pay them off, and when we got ripped off by them, for millions of dollars. We couldn't say anything. We just went on to the next chapter. And so we'd have to take a hit every so often. And they really handed the baton over to the Mexicans, which I predicted. I knew the Mexicans were going to take over. They're much cruder. Uh, they don't deal things the same. The integrity of the game is not the same with Mexicans. They don't have the... the the esteem that, that a Colombian has, this champagne caviar stuff does not blow with Mexicans at all. They're very crude. They're third world, and uh, they're tough. And that's where I have to jump out of the game because they weren't the same deal at all. In fact, they handled all aspects of that business from retail sales on up to laundering money they want everything for themselves and nothing for nobody else. That's where the cartels from Colombia really got put to a stop. Although the cartels do the upper management, once it leaves the jungles, ends up past Brazil, past Panama, and ends up in the borders of Mexico, onto the submarines, on the way to Spain, on the way to Europe, and into the United States, pretty much the Mexicans dominate. They're not the same players. They don't play the same. I don't understand them. Their covertness is much different. 
And it's an area I've never been able really to understand. Have worked with them slightly, uh, but think? not comfortable with it. I'll tell you how this works. The best way to control a controlled substance is to be on the inside. To basically control it from the inside. To absolutely be a part of an ongoing operation and to continue with that. If you control it from the inside, you truly control the controlled substance. This is U.S. government on the inside and buddy-buddy with Mexico. And I definitely can tell you, you could, you could try getting stuff across on your own. It's not that hard, but you're not going to get a large scale of drugs across until some border agent and somebody who's part of the inside on the U.S. government is going to let it come in. And that's a good way to do it because really when it comes bus time, there's no arguing with it. They've already controlled from the inside. So if you really do want to control drugs, start from the inside. Let it go as long as you can. It may seem out of hand, but really when you clamp it down, you've just solved it. And that's their solution. Unfortunately, diversity of drugs out now, you're not going to be able to control it. There's uh, manufacturing of methamphetamine. There's manufacturing of, of other substances like um, fentanyl. Um, synthetic heroin, heroin, morphine, um, cocaine is just a glamour drug. It's really not that present in, in the scene. Uh, your heroin's a huge problem. Opiates are a huge problem. And controlling that from the inside is being done. It's obvious. But the addiction rate supersedes the actual effectiveness of the U.S. government. They have a real problem. Uh, Clemens were predicting this too. They did say that the coca leave. Back in late 90s, they said that they were tearing the coca plants up and they were planting opium in its place. And that sounded disgusting. I never dealt with that very well. I did deal with the Chinese and China White and I felt that that, I believe that was a harmful drug and I, I, I can't get involved in anything that hurts people. So I personally omit myself from anything that brings somebody that could cause an overdose and die or hurt themselves. So I definitely backed away. And China White was extremely valuable, extremely valuable. But because of my moral upbringing, I felt uncomfortable with having to do anything with it. The prices were extremely high. The game was high. Yes, the Chinese and Colombians sat down and we exchanged product and information. Um, I just felt that it would be like comparing a, riding a bicycle to riding an airplane when you compare China White to cocaine. There's just, and, and, and China White was an airplane. And it was way above my head and was too high for me to even deal with. And the jail time and the heat involved was extremely, extremely big difference. A pinhead of China White could kill somebody. And um, that fear factor, because of my moral upbringing, I wouldn't allow it. And marijuana was a recreational drug and so is cocaine, and I don't believe heroin is. 
people just don't go, oh, hey, everybody, let's just uh, sit down and do some heroin together. That, that don't happen. But they will say, oh, hey, let's all smoke a joint or, or do a line. That can happen, and that's, there's no victims and there's no, no bad outcome. Out there were cocaine and China White, which was coming off the East Coast, which has always been a really big problem for heat. And I know to stay away from that. Um, the underground growing marijuana thing was here in Seattle, and it, it, it was there, and it was illegal, and the, and the DEA was involved. But um, as far as uh, government having anything to anything major to figure out, um, they didn't have much to work with like they do today. Today, it is so diversified that I think their new program is, getting back to the subject, is they waited, or now, excuse me, they wait for people to fall in their arms. They're not going to look for a meth lab. They're going to let a meth lab blow up and then just scrape people off the pavement. And that's exactly how they're doing with warrants and stuff. They wait till a person gets in a car and drives and makes a wrong move and then pulls them over and there comes their warrant. If you could stay under the radar, you can get away with a lot. But that means no trouble, no victims, no crime. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody to hear it, there's not a problem. And that's the way good things go. But unfortunately, some of these... Some of these crimes are, are just victim crimes. And when you have a victim, you have a crime, you have a problem. If you don't have... I remember the police coming up my stairs one day, one day saying, we don't have a problem with, with, with escort girls because nobody gets hurt. But we have a problem with, with violence. We don't have a tr trouble with drugs because nobody gets hurt, but we have a problem with violence. If there's going to be a violence involved with escort girls or drugs, we have a problem. Russians didn't show up till the 2000s. They were basically East Coast. They were very snotty. Their deal, their approach towards me was to open bank accounts, let them run this black card, and then they would scramble all these, these credit card numbers and then have approached me to go open a bank account and um, pay me to, to withdraw that money out of an account. And that sounds like a pretty stupid thing to do. And being able to work for the Columbians and doing what I did, uh, I know how to exchange money. And that is the worst position you could ever be in is to do something that is at that level and be the sucker that's going to pick up that money because that's where the problem is going to start. Um, didn't they were sarcastic and and show offy a little bit. They they were playing cool. They did have their thing going. Just wasn't the same their product, they didn't have a product to deal with. They had, it was basically stealing from people, and it doesn't have the integrity. At least with the Colombians, they had to have a product that was grown. It was taken care of, grown, and agriculturally. It was put on a donkey. It was curried through. It was processed. It was a physical product. They made an effort, and no, nobody was stealing from anybody, and that had value. 
But if you're going to just take credit card numbers and crunch them and steal from people, your your karma wasn't going to be good and the outcome wasn't going to be good. I didn't like being involved in that, so I didn't deal with the Russians, although they approached me. Um, but th their stuff just didn't smell right. Just, you just had to be able to, to pay off your debts. And yes, they did set you up to where you could never pay them off. So you're always continually struggling to pay off a debt or two with them. And how did debts occur? Mismanaging funds, overpaying security, or uh, robberies, or bust. There's a point to where you know things are getting so out of hand that I used to leave the front door open saying, whoever gets me first is what's going to happen. It's a game of cops and robbers. Who's going to come get me? Are the Colombians going to come assassinate me? Are the police going to come haul me away forever? You just get fed up. You know, you can't just quit. When you're involved in something, you can't quit. The Colombians had a grip on you to where you they let you misappropriate funds. And then once you got yourself in a debt like that, you owed them money and you couldn't pull yourself out of it. But I knew better than that until robberies happened and they were inside. Colombians robbed their own stuff back from me. Complications of the situation and the... the just, just so, never got resolved. There's some things that don't get resolved. But I think I took some financial losses that were unnecessary and I wouldn't be having the hard life I'm having now had I just just been very greedy. But I chose peace over over product and peace over money. That's I chose fine, peace. I, I sleep at night. Things just fall through the cracks in about 2001. Um, wasn't advantageous to be involved with them anymore. You need to just quit what you're doing and not get involved anymore. Uh, you're a good father, but you, you know, there's other ways to make money and you need to just count yourself lucky. If we didn't love you and care for you so much, you would be in jail with them. This kind of thing is that it's, it won't happen again. It's like saying the bootleg time and the speakeasies, uh, the 1920s and 30s. It was, it was, it was happening. It did happen then. There was a lot going on and it doesn't exist anymore and neither does this it doesn't this there's not gangsters at the big long uh packards like bonnie and clyde and al capone and them you know running chicago down and and uh you know all this money and these speakeasies and this money it it it's it, it did happen it's real we got recorded history but it won't happen again it evolves so my story is passé, it's past. It did happen, it was exciting, it won't happen like this again. If I were you, the question I'd ask, what would I do today that would be different? What would I do today that would be different? That question is a whole bunch of questions that you have to give me time to think about.
that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.